Hello and welcome to Entrepreneur Talks, LSE Entrepreneur's weekly podcast series. We talk to successful entrepreneurs and CEOs to extract strategies and tools to help you on the way to greatness. This week we have Francois Benahimas, CEO of luxury watchmaking powerhouse Orema Piguet. With his most expensive watch approaching the 1 million US dollar mark, their watches are owned by celebrities such as Tom Cruise to royalties such as Philippe VI of Spain. Francois is a very animated and creative individual. Listen in to find out what he thinks luxury means and what the role of a CEO entails. This is out of curiosity, but do you see this as a marketing opportunity for the future leaders of tomorrow? Absolutely. It's, it's two things. If, we, if I leave, no, three. If I leave the room tonight and I will see in people's faces that it was meaningful to them, that's a victory. If I manage to convince people that working for a brand like Odema Piguet could be really cool, that's a second victory. And if I manage to open the eyes of some people that that level of watchmaking is not out of anybody's reach somehow, okay. it's much more human than what people think. That will be the third. Okay. So let's see if, if we win or we lose tonight. Oh, we'll see about that, yeah. Um, can you tell us about the watch you're wearing right now, actually? Um, yes. Um, it's a watch we introduced in, uh, in July this year. It's called the Concept Chrono Tourbillon Skeleton. So Chrono Tourbillon Skeleton might be a bit too complicated. But that watch is not in gold, not in platinum, it's in titanium. And it is worth 350,000 Swiss francs, which is roughly 250, 270,000 pounds. Uh, I run fast, so no need to come after me, and I've got people with guns, okay? And I could shoot people as well, so be very careful. I'm just letting you know, but that's a watch. If you want to look at it, okay, you can look at it. It has to come back. Yeah. <laughs> okay? So that's the watch I'm wearing. Funny story about the watch. Uh, I met, a, uh, I would say, yeah, a kid. A kid, 24 years old. Chinese and Canadian in Shanghai three months ago through an event. He collects watches. And he's, uh, that's his own money. That's not his dad's money. That's his money. And we, we, we got a collection that evening. And he said, I want to come and see you in Switzerland. So he flew to Switzerland, maybe two months later. So it's a month ago. And we are having lunch in my office. And I knew that this watch would come. And I say, and I asked somebody on the on, on phone to bring me the watch because that was the very first one that would come out of production. And I say, okay, so I've got something to show you. And he looked at the watch and he said, no, no. And say, because he got an Instagram account, say, can I put it on Instagram? He say, sure. But I'm going to be the first one to talk about it on Instagram. He say, yes, go, have fun. Long story short, he bought the watch. And I got a text from him the following day. And so you have to understand, we had met each other twice, twice. One in Shanghai, one in my office. And he says, Francois, fuck you. This is the most expensive lunch of my entire life. Uh, and I don't know what you did to me, but you made me spend that money. And I hate you for that. Love you, love you, love you. Heart, 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 smiley, smiley, smiley. I answered back. 
Fuck you too. <laughs> this is just the beginning. Next time you're in my office, you're gonna spend a million. So be glad you only spent 350. Love you. Heart, heart, heart. <laughs> Full story. Where's the watch right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm watching, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Uh, do, are you comfortable with, like, I mean, it's, what, how much is it, 250,000, you said? Right? Yeah, 270,000 pounds, something like this. Are you comfortable with just handing it out and people are looking at it? What if someone drops it or something? Are you not on edge and? Okay. Nobody's going to drop the watch. Or they would have to run very fast, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Before everyone came in, you were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? I'm kind of glad that you brought that up because your career twist as well. You didn't, you know, go to university like you said. Uh, you went from being a golf, you know, champion. No, not champion. You went to a French championship. You took 25th, no, I think. No, but I was, I, I was, I became a professional golfer when I was okay. 18 years old. I wanted to be number one in the world. I failed drastically. At my best level, I was a 25th player in France then which would be like the 2,000 million people on the planet. So I said, maybe this is not for me. And I went to the fashion business for seven years and I met somebody in Saint Bart's on vacation who offered me the job to work for the Marpiguet 25 years ago. But like, were you always into fashion, like even as a, as a kid or? I think I could have done many things in my life. Yeah. I didn't set, I wanted to be a professional golfer. That was it but I could have worked in so many different industries. It was much more life brought me in places. It was fashion first and then AP for the last 25 years. Okay. Could you maybe tell the audience the story about you as a child with your brother? You had a little business, right? Yeah, so we started because we were living in a, in a, in a sort of residence where there were 15 buildings, three floors buildings, 15. And I was maybe, I would say eight, eight years old. My brother, two years younger, and I say, you know what? There's a great business opportunity. We got to deliver breakfast to the entire residence every weekend because during the week we're at school. So we asked my dad to go and bring us to a bakery store and we negotiated with a guy and say, we want to go and deliver croissants and chocolate, chocolate things to, to people in the residence. So he said, okay, my father's gonna pay obviously and invest and we're gonna make a little bit of money. And we started. And when you're a kid, obviously, when you're that age, everybody is going to open the door. So what do you want? It's Friday evening. Yes. So we would have to deliver breakfast. So you want croissant, you want baguette, you want this, you want that. And it was going well. Until my brother uh, decided not to wake up in the morning, in the weekends. And I was not able alone to do the whole thing. So the business crumbled after three weeks. <laughs> but I had the thing that why people had to go out of their home when we could actually do this ourselves. So I always had a business sense and I still had this today, wherever I go, a restaurant, a hotel, a theater, uh, on vacations, anywhere, I know what could be done better. It's a sort of, uh, it comes to me. I could tell you a few things about the university after we'd have a change question and answers. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, do you think that entrepreneurial, I mean, it's entrepreneurial spirit, right? Like mm -hmm. looking at, do you think that's something that you're born with or is it something that's cultivated? I think I'm born with, but it's something, it's like any, any special talent. If you have that talent and you don't work on it, mm -hmm. then nothing's going to happen. And I've been a better student of life than I was a student of in school. Because every time I got to meet people from different businesses, whether they were doctors or people working in, in the entertainment or banking, 
I've always asked a zillion questions to understand how they would actually make a difference. How would they treat people? How would they get the, the age? And how would they come up with ideas? I've always asked a, a zillion questions. I wanted to learn how to actually grow a business. So you see every encounter as an opportunity to improve. Always, 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 and still today. And I'm, and it's funny because even through the relationship that we've had with athletes, ambassadors, no matter who they, who they were, they were also asking us on the, on the business side how we could grow a brand. You could take a guy like LeBron James, which I met when I was 18 years old. When he was 18 years old, he was not thinking that one day LeBron James would become such a brand that Nike would offer him a life deal, lifetime deal. So, and when we see each other today, we still talk about it, say, do you remember where we were and where we are today? Mm -hmm. So all those type of things, and now you built it because it doesn't come overnight. It doesn't get done just because of who you are. It's also the time you spend to do things right over and over and over again. Okay. Um I mean, we already had it real briefly, like you handing out that watch and like, you know, LeBron James, all these athletes. Where is the watch, by the way? There, it's there. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, good to remind you of that one, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, so, you know, I high society, thinking of luxury, you know, what is your relationship to luxury? Like, what do you see as luxury? First of all, the world of luxury has been abused and abused, over-abused for the last, I would say, 10 years. You could get a coffee cup and call this luxury coffee, which makes it a little bit weird true luxury is exclusivity let's start with that and i would associate another word with it immediately it's craft the time it takes to do something really truly special now luxury doesn't always mean that you have to spend a zillion or a ton of money it's most of the time expensive but one guy said it the best possible way it was axel dumas the ceo of Hermes. okay because many, many times he's exposed to people who are saying, but it's expensive. And he says the best sentence, Hermes is an expensive brand to make. Yes, because everything they make is done with a certain time and craft and, 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 and the leather is special and they get the best things out of everything. And yes, it does cost money. The biggest thing we see with Audemars Piguet, every time people go to our factory in Switzerland, and the two other factory, whether you're 20 years old or 70 years old, you will never, never, ever question prices. You could go to the factory on the Monday morning and you will see a watchmaker working on one part, one part. And sometimes in watches, you can go up to 600 parts in a single watch. He's working on one part and you go that same week on the Friday, he's still on that same part because he made a mistake first, it broke and he went to another one. And at the end of the week, that one. 350 more to go. And when you see the time it takes to do things by hand like that, there is no price anymore. It doesn't exist. They don't challenge the fact that it does cost money. So as long as we have an appreciation in our brains for craft, exclusivity, the time it takes to do things the right way, there is a long life for the luxury world in general. There is a big difference coming though. It's the arrival of technology. And even we are looking at that with Audemars Piguet because what would be a watchmaker 2.0? Is it going to be a machine? How is it going to work? Is it going to work directly on the watch or maybe he's going to get a tool like surgeons do today where they move their hands, but the tools are actually on the body. Okay, we have so many things going on. 
So that's a big question. What's going to be the watchmaker for tomorrow? And we do believe that as long as we stay true to who we are, watchmakers done by hand, finished by hands with small quantities of watches, there is a long life for the Marpillier. It doesn't mean that we're not using machines. But today there is, there is another kind of job called micro-mechanicians. These people are the new stars as well because they can make machines play in ways that you, nobody could do, basically. It's take, it's, they are the Mozarts or the Beethovens of the 21st century. They actually challenge the manufacturers of machines and their own fields, on their own techniques and say, I want the machine to be able to do this, 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 this and that. And they are the stars of tomorrow. So that could become a sort of new watchmakers as well. Okay, I want to go into the whole technology thing a little later, but you, you talked about exclusivity, right? Um, and like looking at the Audemars Piguet culture, it seems like it's like a very close community with, uh, you know, you, I think you talked in an interview about that. The sports star and the, you know, people who are uh, customers of Audemars Piguet, you know, they, they interact with each other and you answer every client's email personally. Mm -hmm. um, Would you, would you think that that has something to do with your you know, golf career, which kind of, it kind of reminds you of like this exclusive golf club, you know, where... No, because I never want to make people feel that it's a club to start okay. with. It's not a club. And many, many times I'm asked through interviews, who is the other Piguet client? And I hate this question because what am I going to say? He has to be blonde with blue eyes, with a certain height and a certain shape. No, that goes very bad, basically. So, it's, no, it's pretty much everybody that w loves what we do is more than welcome, whether you're 15 years old, and we sell to 15 years old, to uh, 90 years old. So it's much more a matter of, uh, of welcoming people the right way and making them a part of who we are because then they become the next best ambassadors. You need to be a star to, to, to sell watches. If he has an Audemars Piguet watch, what's your name? Huh? Dan. Dan. Have you already somehow, talking to your friends, convinced them to buy one? I don't have many friends to... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Dan, that's a weak answer. You will not get a job at Audemars Piguet yet. <laughs> But true story, okay, my daughter, 20 years old, 20 years old, two years ago, three years ago now, never wore a watch in her life, not a flip flag, not a swatch, nothing ever on her wrist. And since she, she's your age, and I call your generation the most ADD generation ever. Everybody knows what ADD means, I hope. Attention deficit disorder. Yes, because since you guys are kids, you could be, do your homework with music on, writing your friend on Facebook, chatting on the phone, having the TV on. I could never do such a thing. But the good news about it, you're very quick at many, many things. And because of that, we could challenge what could be the future of a brand like Audemars Piguet with your generation. So I said, you know what? You got a turn three years ago. She turned 20. And I say, I want to buy you a watch. I want you to wear Audemars Piguet. But not because I'm the CEO of Audemars Piguet, because I want you to appreciate the watch. If you don't want it, it's okay. I won't force you to one. So she was uh, studying at UCLA. I flew her to Switzerland and say, do it tour the factory for two hours. And then if you like what you see, then we'll talk. She came back two hours later and she said, you know what, dad, I want to wear the watch because this is the first time I see something that will last. And that made me think, yeah, because you are the throwaway generation. 
Yes, you are. Look at the way you look. Uh, iPhone 4, iPhone 5 comes, 4, garbage. iPhone 6, 5, garbage. The way you do your lunches, dinners with friends, what do you want to eat tonight? Italian, Japanese, Chinese, Indian, Vietnamese, whatever it is, order in. You throw. There are so many things which are, would live by the day or the hour. When you start to talk that to, to reach that world of Ode Marpillet, it doesn't work this way. We can fix a watch from 1875, the way it was made then. Is it going to please everybody? No. But then, after the visit of the factory, she went back to UCLA, and in the following six months, she managed to sell four watches to some of her friends just by sharing the story. So, you know how many watches we are making a year? 40,000 40, for the world. 40,000 watches. Okay? So think about it for a second. 40,000 watches. My daughter is 39,999. Six months later, 39,995. Because she sold four others. And I do believe that there is every possibility on this planet to sell 40,000 watches to a generation that started 15 years old to 90 years old. Another number. We are 8 billion souls on the planet. What do, what do we use as a percentage for high net worth individuals? The 1%. You know, we, people always talk about the 1% population. Let's divide that 1% by 4. Let's make it the 0.25% of the worldwide population. That's 20 million people. I'm going to take Rolex, Cartier, Breitling, and Omega out of the equation, not a judgment call, but they make watches by hundreds of thousands. So I'm not considering them. It's, I'm not judging, huh? Don't, uh, okay? Out of the equation. Now I'm going to start with Panerai and up. So Panerai, IWC, Gégère, Blancpain, Breguet, Patek, Audemars, Vacheron, everybody else. How many watches did we make last year? All together, take a wild guess. Huh? 300,000. 300, we say 305. We have 305. <laughs> no. Give me another number. So 300,000. 1 million. Half a million. 200,000. 600,000 watches last year. 600,000 watches. Have you heard about the story of the shoe manufacturer that sends two cells ripe in the world, in the country? Sorry. There is that story. You're going to understand where I'm going with that. So there's a shoe manufacturer, okay, that wants to send two sales rep in a new country. So the boss tells the two guys, is two best guys. So you are going to that country, and you have to sell shoes. Give me a sort of what the business is. Three weeks in, they come back. The first one says, you know what, boss? Not a good country for us. Impossible. They don't wear shoes. Okay. So it gets the second guy, say, so, a new boss. Fantastic country. Unbelievable. They don't wear shoes. That's just the way you look at the picture. And if you think that, because we make 600,000 watches, we're in front of minimum, minimum 20 to 40 million people on the planet, and people think that the smartwatches could kill our business, there is not a chance. It's just a matter of preaching the art of watchmaking to the biggest possible crowd, Hence, the success of the brand and the watchmaking industry for many, many years to come. 
and it's not the smartwatches that will kill our business because it's like McDonald's will call, we kill three-star Michelin restaurants. One has nothing to do with the other. They can perfectly live together. So it's one and the other and not one or the other. Look, you are the perfect proof tonight. Half of the people are wearing watches. Only two are wearing smart watches, which will make our watches look stupid. Be careful. And many of you don't wear anything. And on the people who don't wear anything, maybe if I could convince one, two, or three that it's actually pretty interesting as a other world, that would be a step forward. So this is always the way we have to look at the picture. So would you say like a watch is like this goes beyond generations? It's you know people are paying for the craftsmanship, people are paying paying for the design. People are, are buying into this for so many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, you know what? That was a, a, a bit something old, and another brand is using that as a, as a tagline, which is very smart. Maybe one of the smartest ad campaign of the 21st century. Sure, sure, it's smart, but, but. <laughs> but, think about it for a second. Okay, so Patek says, begin your own tradition, you don't actually own the watch, you, you actually for the next generation. You know what, the other Mappier client, couldn't care less about the fact he's gonna give it to his son or his daughter. They want to enjoy themselves, they want to reward themselves now. Why? They work hard, They party hard, they reward hard. Okay, they want, and that's what it is. Now, if they give the watch to their son or their daughter down the road, so be it. But we see a lot more Audemars Piguet worn because people actually say, I want to enjoy what it is. We had a visit uh, three weeks ago. German family, the kid is 15 years old, he's a tennis champion in, uh, in uh, Michigan. Okay, they live in, uh, in Detroit. And he came and he dragged his parents to Audemars Piguet. So they showed up unannounced. They say, okay, yeah, he has been talking about, uh, about AP for the last two years. So he was 13 when he started to tell his parents, I want Audemars Piguet. So he bought a watch. Then because he bought a watch, his dad bought a watch, and mom bought a watch. And I told the kid, what made you want AP? And somehow the notion was, because as, and he's an athlete, he said, I associate Audemars Piguet with victory. He said, but how? Yeah, because of the athletes and everything doing sports and everything. So his association with the brand was victory. It was not tradition. It was not transmission from your parents. It was not. It's what I feel. So this is when marketing, that's a funny thing with a, with, with a brand like Audemars Piguet as well. Sometimes we spend hours and hours in room about what could we do to target the people and the millennials and the 50 years old and the men and the women. And we decide things. Okay, then we, we start promotions. And we see that the public reacts in a completely different way. And we go with the flow. And it's funny because we think that everything is so perfectly planned when it's so not. And many, many times we have big expectations on things where we are sure it's going to work a certain way and it works the exact opposite. And sometimes we don't expect anything to happen serious and it's big. So we have to be careful. That's always what I call the difference between it's here, it's white, but the blackboard, school, and the street outside. Big difference. I want to go back to the family concept, transmission, the watch, you know. But AP is a family-owned business, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious about, first of all, like what is the organizational culture like? Because it's a, do you feel like, oh, yeah, this is very traditional, family-like? Because... 
from what you say, that does not seem like it at all. It seems like, you know, it's like for the present person, for the present individual. So, you know, how does that work? How no, do you no, feel no, no, the no. family thing? The notion the... of family is extremely important. Mm -hmm. But in a sense of they want to make sure that the brand will still be there and for what it is now, 50, 100 and 500 years from now. So the mission that they give me every year is not increase the business by 20 percent. It's not increase the profit, the profitability by 20 percent. It's much more. You have to do everything right to secure the integrity and the perceived value of the brand because 20, 50, 400 years from now, we want to be alive. Because there is a sort of mission of we owe it to where we are from, the Valley de Joux, okay, in Switzerland, which is sort of uh, the comment dit berceau. Cradle of watchmaking. That's where everything was born. From people that didn't want in the 18th century to actually study watchmaking in Lausanne or in Genève, because you had to study for seven years. It was a lot of money. And one guy said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm out. I don't want to do seven years. I'm going to go to that place up there in the mountains where nobody goes because there is literally nothing, only rocks, water, and that's it, and wood. And he went there as the first guy and said, I'm going to start my own apprenticeship. And he learned on his own. So that notion of being very independent, being child of your destiny, is a part of everything there. And in the minds of the other man, the PK people at the board of directors, it's anchored. It says, no matter what, nobody's going to tell us ever what we have to do. And that talks to a lot of people, especially in this room as well, I'm sure. Okay. Um, so, so you feel like that personally as well. You took charge of your own destiny. You're like, you know, you can, can you, can you just basically tell us how to do it? Like, how can you start from, I think you start from sales. How much money do you have on you right now? That's a matter of money. How much money you have on you right now? If you have enough I money, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, it's not good, but, uh, you know, let's, you know, we never know. Um, so yeah. How did you, I mean, you started from, well, I think you started from sales and marketing, right? Like 24, 24 years ago. At Audemars Piguet At before? Audemars Piguet. <laughs> no, because in the fashion business, I started to actually pack boxes. I was shipping, a shipping guy. Oh, you then start there. How yeah, did you okay, do that? that's what I was doing. Because I, I, <laughs> I didn't know anything about fashion. So I showed up my first day. That was a funny thing. At that time, the fashion world was very special. And I showed up with a sort of weird jacket that I found a few days before. He had two lapels, okay? A double lapel, which is just a joke. Actually, and I showed up, and my boss then cut with scissors one of the lapels. He said, "There is no way you're gonna work with me dressed like this, like a clown." And I had huge pads. It was the '80s, so I had huge pads on the shoulders. He cut also with the scissors the whole pad. He said, "Okay, so now the shoulder is better. Only one apple. You can come and work for me." So I said, "What do I do? Downstairs, there is a room. Okay, and this is where you gotta ship clothing to the country." I said, but I thought I was going to sell. No, 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 before selling, you gotta start shipping. It was a room, no windows. There was a brown carpet on the walls. And he says, but you don't see anything. Say, no, you have to paint it white. Okay, but I don't know how to paint. So, okay, but find your way. So I went to buy white paint, okay, to paint that brown carpet. I challenge you to ever try to paint in white brown carpet. <laughs> Never gets white. Never. So four inches later of paint, okay, it starts to eventually get white. That was my very first beginning at, uh, in the fashion world. 
And I started finally to start to sell, go here, go there, go there. And I made my way up because I always had that thing about selling and promoting. I think I'm good at that. And interacting with people, driving the passion and, and getting people to, to, to follow what, what, what we are doing. But it was never studied, learned. It was learned with mistakes, obviously. I made many, many, many. Today, people are scared about those mistakes. Actually, you have to make plenty to make sure. Hopefully, you don't make the same mistakes too many times because then it's called stupidity. Uh, but when you learn from your mistakes, it's, it's good and you move forward. But it was never written. There is not a lesson I could give and say you have to do it a certain way. I could give you the bullshit things, but you know already this from your parents. They are what I call, no, but what I call the golden rules of business in general. <clears throat> Words. When you make commitment to people, the time it takes. I'm going to share a story with that. That was an important one. So I moved to the United States in 1999. At that time, the brand was dead. When I said dead, dead. So it was funny because it was opening the subsidiary of Audemars Piguet. So I was a CEO, title, business card. And the brand was a disaster because we had a distributor that did a very poor job for many, many years before. So I was showing up in stores and say, hi, my name is Francois Benamias and I'm the CEO for the Marpillet. I say, oh, the Marpillet, get up. I was not allowed actually to stay in the store. So already, so I'm, I'm so sad, no, I disappointed you. Huh? Quite I don't know, but uh, you know what? I want your watch now. Bye, bye, bye. Sorry about that. No worries. And um, so it was how bad it was. And in 2000, <laughs> It was the 125th anniversary of the company. And we made 125 unique watches. And because there was a fight worldwide to get the best of the 125, it was not 125 perfect watches. And one of these 125 unique watches was a walking stick with a Chinese mechanism on top. So it was selling for 500,000 then, half a million. And we got awarded, actually, the fact that we could sell that walking stick in the US. So I went to one of my retailers that went to one of his clients and we pre-sold the walking stick. That, and after that, we had to, after the exhibition and the tour of a year worldwide, we had to take all the 125 watches back to Switzerland, overhaul them, make sure they were perfect to deliver them to the specific countries. In between, another guy, Turkish guy, who used to buy from our store in Geneva, said, I want the walking stick. So my CEO then came to me and said, Francois, I need the walking stick for the Geneva store because then we got to get the margin also from the retail. So it's a better sell from us. I said, there is no way because I gave my word and my words are important. There is no way. So you, I need the walking stick. He said, I'm the boss. I'm telling you, I'm taking it away from you because I want to sell it from the store in Geneva. I said, okay. So I flew back to the US, to the checkbook, and wrote a check for the exact amount of money that that walking stick would have generated as margin, okay, for the retailer. So I wrote a check of 180,000 US dollars in 2000, being a baby seal against the will of my own boss. Didn't know I was doing this because at that time there was no compliance where everybody had to go to signatures. <laughs> Full story. I did it. 
And then I send him an email, say, this is what I did. Now you can choose to fire me, but I don't care because I will not work if I cannot get my words respected. And he agreed to it. But I, I sent that check to the retailer. The funny thing is I, did a, I ended up in jail because the retailer, <laughs> true story, the retailer that I gave the check to bought himself an Aston Martin, okay, gave me the car to try. And I got caught at 120 miles an hour when it was limited to 50 miles an hour. <laughs> went to jail in Chicago, okay, for almost one night. Uh, <laughs> so it was the end of the story of being actually true to my word. But this is so important because I see this too many times. We take shortcuts. People want to take shortcuts. Go faster to point A, from point A to point B. But at the end, when you give your word, stick to it. This is so important, especially in this world. Because nobody needs luxury. Nobody. Nobody needs to buy another expensive item. So when you are in that world, the commitment, the relationship that you have with people is key. Because you might not see a client sometimes for one year or two years, and he comes back. But if your attitude, your, your perseverance with him was always correct, he will always remember. People with money have all the choices they want in the world. And you have to be careful because the wealthier you get, the more bombarded with offers you get as well. People want you. They want you for who you are, what you stand for, and they're going to promise you the world. But at the end, you have to stay true to who you are and stick to the basic rules of behavior with those people. If you give the impression that you only want the money, you're dead. And the best answer that you could ever give to someone, whether it's in a store, in a restaurant, or something, when when you are a salesperson is, this is not for you. I'm going to talk to women for a second. How many times you've been to stores where you want to buy something for yourself and the salesperson, no matter what you're going to try, say, this looks so great on you. It's fantastic. You could wear a garbage bag and that would still be great. Tell me that never happened before. That happens many, many times. A great salesperson, and I'm not talking about selling just luxury, I'm talking about selling in general any idea. Sometimes you have to say, no, I don't want this for you. This is not good for you. I'd rather not sell you than selling you this. Like in a restaurant, that, that does not happen very often, but when the waiter would say, you've got three possible courses, and you say, don't take that one, that one's better. Though all those type of things, these are key when you're in this world of... Uh, would you say that even as the CEO, you would you're still in this sales mentality? Like you, you took all the values. Always. Okay. So how do you like, you know, as as in that position, like how do you delegate your time? Like you know, how do you manage your company? What are your focuses? Making people uh, play the same music. When you run a company, we have sixteen hundred employees at Audemars Piguet. I feel like I'm a conductor. So I'm not the best in finance, I'm not the best in IT, I'm not the best in manufacturing, I'm not the best in, uh, in marketing, I'm the best in sales. Yeah, this I'm good at that. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, I'm good at that. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, communication is obviously key, which, that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay, so, um, I mean, you're friends with like, you know, I've seen pictures, you with Sylvester Stallone, you talked about Arnold Schwarzenegger, all these people. <coughs> what would they say, like, who you are, like, how, how you are? You know, as a person, is that a little, is that a little <laughs> fucked up? Oh, oh, okay, there we go. No, 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 no. 
Now, the, ba- the biggest reward I have running the company today is wherever I go in the world, and we're in 74 countries, people know me as Francois mm. and not Mr. Benamias, because Mr. Benamias would be a little bit, which I don't want, it's Francois. And that's a reward. That's how close I've managed to, to, to be with so many people on the planet. The known and the unknown. It's not a matter of being always with unknown people. It's, that's a li- tiny, tiny, tiny part. But I've never, never abused about a relationship. Meaning that if we're with famous people, yeah. and we've done it a lot with athletes and entertainers, it's never abusing the relationship and asking for more than what they would do and knowing how to stop at one point when they don't want to go the extra mile and say, let the guy go, it's fine. Don't bother. When people say, no, I want the other autograph and I got my mother and my fish and he wants the autograph and says, no, stop, 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 stop. Enough is enough. These, these guys are bombarded with, with offers and you have to behave the right way. And because we did it that way, and I say we did, because it's not only me, it's the brand as a whole that we kept this relationship alive for so long. Okay. So, um, I mean, to the external, like you, you have a very significant, like you have a strong character, like, I think people would say that, like, you leave an impression. But how are you like, like, um, when people are not around? Like, what is your daily routine like? You know, what do you do when you wake up? Like, how, how does Don't it Don't ask me that question. Up? That question was asked to me by a journalist two years ago at the SIHH, which is the watch fair in Geneva every year. First journalist, 8 o'clock in the morning, Monday, Monday. The first Monday morning, 8 o'clock. First question. So, Francois, could uh, I ask you what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> there is another step before that in general for any human being you may go to the bathroom yeah, that was a different question he didn't say first he said what do you do in the morning what I do in the morning yes. uh, first of all morning starts very early for me okay what time I would say between four and five okay yes do you get the eight hours of beauty sleep or no way you don't get that <laughs> no, 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 no 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 I wish but no <laughs> But I'm, in general, falling apart by 10. Falling apart by 10? Uh, by 10, 10, 30, I'm dead. At I'm night, though, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> You're very cute, you know that? <laughs> yes, at night, at night. But the days are pretty intense. Yes, they are intense. Do you have any um, regimen to, like, you know, obviously it's a very stressful job, like you say. Like, do you have anything, like, you know, meditation or, like, hobbies that you do to like, take care of it? Look at me. Do I look at someone who meditates? <laughs> I've tried. I tried yoga. I got fired by my yoga teacher. I mean, no way. This is... I wish I could find a way to be a little bit but no, not me. Okay. No. Any hobbies or something? Yeah, big time. Music. Okay. Music. Yes, music is a very important one. I got lucky to meet also important people from the music world. Mm-hmm. I listen to music. I, I'm always looking at what's, what's happening. And when I travel or if I, if I don't sleep at night, I'm going to go to YouTube and spend hours on the Britain's Got Talent, American Got Talent, <laughs> The Voice. I know, yes. And I can cry, actually. Oh, yeah. Voices make, make me cry. Oh, yeah. Oh, cute. So... <laughs> So there is something, if you remember, that you're going to do when you will be home tonight. If some of you go home. Um, <laughs> you're going to go to uh, YouTube and you're going to type Memphis Audemars Piguet. Memphis was the show that won the best show at the Tony Awards in 2010. 
I saw the show, fell in love with the show. It's the story of a white DJ at the end of the 50s who started to play black music on radio, on white radio, and dates a black girl. So the show has a lot of messages and it's great. And the music is top notch. So I got to meet the, the producer of the show, a woman. And at that time, we were a sponsor of the red carpet at the Tony Awards every year. And I say, you know what? So we're going to do something which has nothing to do of about, and it's nothing about selling more Odema Piguet watches. We're going to take 1,500 kids that could never go to Broadway. We're going to teach them the last song that the cast perform on stage. And we're going to do a flash mob of what they do without the cast knowing it. And we did. The funny thing is, we had so teachers going to different schools, the suburbs of Manhattan, and all underprivileged kids. And that day was really special. And they were supposed to come and do their piece at the curtain call. Except that one or two completely forgot it was on the curtain call, and they came and started to stand and, and sing and dance earlier. But the, when the two or three stood up, the whole theater stood up and took the cast really by surprise. So you got to watch that. If you have zero emotion watching it, we will never be friends. <laughs> and you never work for the market If you have a little bit of emotions, you will understand what it meant for us that day. It's still today one of my best day ever at Audemars Piguet. It was not about selling more watches, obviously. And because of that, they gave me a Tony Award. Wow. Yeah, because it was so special what we did. <laughs> it never happened in Broadway that the following year, they brought back a part of the cast from Memphis to perform on stage and had the 40 kids from that day to dance with them. And I got a Tony. Wow. That's cool. That's very nice. Memphis Audemars Piguet. Go and watch on YouTube. That's a good one. You can see I was a little bit bigger. <laughs> well, now, you know, we talked about emotions and everything. So uh, I think I would like to open up a Q&A session for the last 10 minutes so that, you know, the audience can ask some questions. You can just, when, whatever. <laughs> Shoot. Okay, here. Thank you for the interesting speech. Um, my question is, what has been your biggest regret? throughout your career? I, I screwed up my private life. Yeah. Now, I cannot say that it's because of Odemar Piguet because that could have happened anyway. But through my, through me going up and up and up and up, at one point it did affect Two lives, actually, because I got divorced twice. I'm very happy now. Um, extremely happy. But at the end, I don't know if it's only the job that did that. It's maybe also, it could have been maybe any job, because I'm very intense when I work. And that did affect my life. But does it make me feel bad right now? No. Am I happy with my kids? Yes. I've got a 22 years old and a 6 years old. And it's okay. You, you cannot always, you will not always get everything. It doesn't work this way. The most important thing is when you turn back, and I'm now 54 years old. So you can turn back and say, have I done a lot more good than bad? The answer is yes, we can keep going. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have three questions. Three questions? Yeah. Throughout, the, throughout, the, throughout your, your talk. First one, you said, would you, uh, at the beginning, you said, like, in 2018, 
2008 or something, uh, the company was going to a direction that you didn't like. Yeah. In a sense, I understand. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, you didn't like. And in what direction was that? And it was not. It, it was so not. We are, we are not focusing on what we are doing best. I cannot go into too many details, but long story short is we are spread all across too many things, not one message. So the brand could have been doing many, many things. It was not right for who we were. And I say we are heading to a wrong direction because nobody can relate. Have you heard about the why, how, what from uh, Simon Sinek? No? Why you do a in business? When you run a business, you have to ask yourself three questions. Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And what are you actually doing? That's a very interesting video. Same thing, YouTube, 15 minutes. Simon Sinek can watch it. It's a very good experience. And the why, if you do your why properly, when somebody buys your product, no matter what it is, he's going to be able to answer the why is he is buying to the, the same way you say why I am doing it. That's when you're successful. We were so far away. It was too many different. It's like playing punk, uh, hip hop, soul, uh, jazz, and, uh, and music, classic music at the same time. A cacophony of sounds. So you narrate on basically too. Big time. Yes. And we focused on what we were great at doing. Not, you cannot want, you cannot do everything thinking it's going to work. Choose your path, choose your, 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 Stay true to your DNA and work that way. It was not so complicated, by the way, to fix because the brand was doing half a million, half a billion, sorry, in 2011, and we are passing the billion mark this year. So in six, seven years, we almost doubled the business when the watch industry was going down. We managed to go up big time, and there is no Nobel Prize I would ever get for to, to have done that. It's a matter of putting things in order. And then you also said, like, you guys have a limit on the watch you make every year. Yes. Around 40,000. Mm -hmm. uh, is it, uh, what's the aim of that? Or is it because, is it the, the month worker constrained that number? Or is it because of a sell technique that, you know, it's just, we have 40,000 watches. Well, it just, as in, No, no, today, today 40,000 in the maximum capacity that we have with people, training people and building facilities. We're actually working on the brand new factory that should open. The first part will open in 2022, and the second one will open in 2025. And we hopefully will reach at 1.50, 55, or 60,000. So we don't, we want to grow, but it was good that we were sort of capped at 40 because 40 right now yeah. is through exclusivity. We could easily sell now 45 to 47,000, yeah. but the 40 has helped us reshaping the integrity of the brand. Okay. And I just want one last thing. It's just, um, uh, for the base world, uh, I heard that you guys are not joining for the coming years, or is it for what? The base base world. No, no, not no. You're thinking the SIHH oh, because there is Basel, okay. Fair, and the SIHH. Okay, so okay. we are the SIHH. Are you last year, nineteen. After we stopped. But why? Why is that? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because it's, it doesn't make sense with what we are doing anymore. Actually, it's a fireworks of, of introductions and novelties in January. Most of the time, we don't deliver watches before March, April, June, July, or September. So we, we sh shoot all together at the same time. It's very complicated for the press to really choose 
which brand they're going to talk about. And the time to market is, is of the essence now. I cannot actually promote something and not deliver for nine months, which is a sort of norm in the watchmaking world. So this is our last fair in Geneva in January. We will introduce a brand new collection. <laughs> and uh, we will actually deliver this entire collection starting February 1st. Thank you very much. You're welcome. In the back, I, I saw the hand there. Yes. Sorry? I'm doing a master's in innovation and entrepreneurship. Yes. I never wore a watch in my life. Okay. So with your experience, I'd be very interested to see what would be your sales approach, you know, selling a watch maybe. I can do better than that. So what, what are you studying again? Innovation and entrepreneurship. Okay. So here is what you do. Now, what I'm going to do now, I'm not doing this with every single one of you. Huh? So, I'm going to offer you a plane ticket to come to Switzerland. Okay? And you come and visit us in Switzerland. You go to tour the factory. Okay? And then you'll tell me about not wearing ever a watch again. <laughs> now, what's your first name? Bilal. Bilal? How many know him in the room? Wait, what are you doing here? Nobody knows you here or what? <laughs> You're hiding? But now maybe they would want to. <laughs> or, or they will never see your cute face again. Because when you are in Switzerland, if you don't decide to buy a watch, I'm going to bury you there. <laughs> Have you seen Bella? No. <laughs> okay? But I'm offering you a plane ticket. You're going to come and visit us. Okay? Done. No, no more plane tickets. <laughs> yes. Maybe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mariko, and I'm actually already running a business here. And uh, um, and I'm actually old, but anyway. Uh, so you I'm, actually uh, what? I'm, I'm already running a business here in London, and uh, but I, I don't know that much about like business. I don't have any business degrees, to be honest. And uh, I'd like to know uh, what kind of a business will you be interested in doing uh, if you like apart from like, watch. <laughs> Like what kind of a uh, mark, like what kind of business do you kind of see in the world right now? What kind of like emerging of new opportunities? Yeah, new opportunities. Yes. Services. Okay. Huge. Anything. Services. Okay. How are we gonna bring something to people to avoid them to do the hard part? You know, when you have to go somewhere, get something. How are you gonna actually facilitate the fact that you're gonna help my life getting better? Okay. Services. Okay. Huge. Yeah, I'm actually part of it, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, since you, you told us that you come from a sales background and you, you are good at sales, and... Uh, no, great at sales, please. <laughs> <laughs> come on. And, and since you told us that uh, you, you reply to your own, uh, reply to your customers. So, what I felt with the, uh, with the luxury industry is that, uh, that in-store, in the... The kind of service that, uh, and respect that I would get in a store is it's it's very bad. Uh, you want a, you want to come store. with me next time? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Why? Uh, I don't know. It may be maybe because maybe I don't look like I, I would buy that product from you. Uh, or that, that I don't know. I don't know why they judge uh, a lot. Lot of uh, salesperson they judge on your appearance. And this is the biggest mistake that yeah. the luxury industry has been making for the last fifteen years. Yes. Let me give you an example. Okay, please stand up. Okay, come here. You come here. 
Look at those kids. <laughs> nice suit, white shirt, elegant, no problem. He goes to a store, he looks at, very nice. I'm gonna sell him a watch. Watch, I have a watch. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I know, I saw already. <laughs> the bad thing is, then he's gonna show up. Okay, he's not even shaved properly, the whole thing. <laughs> it's called Motherland on top of everything. Yeah. Thinking, very cool as well. And they gotta assess that he has a lot less money than he just because of that. Guess what? We had a major event in New York last week and I was there. We had 100 people, a lot of people from the tech world, lawyers, everything. Actually, how many people were dressed like this? Almost nobody. They were all dressed like that. And today, I'm not blaming you to be dressed like this, don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is, in today's world, appearance, if people pay attention to that, they are dead. And we make a special effort with all our people in the stores to say, be very careful, very, very careful, because this is not the standard anymore. A lot of people from the tech world, music world, entertainment, are always dressed this way. Okay, and you have to be careful. And it does happen in many, many places. But the next time you do that, then if you've ever experienced that in an auto mapping boutique, you let me know, I will shoot people. Now the, uh, the, the uh, market price of, uh, you know, like Hugo Boss and everything, it's going down because of the China, you know, import restrictions or something that's coming up. So it's like, I also feel some something like, you know, most Indians or Chinese, those are the people who go and buy this more. I'm, I'm, I'm being direct here. But I, I feel there is some sort of, you know, racial bias that, that has crept into the, you know, luxury <coughs> system. And whenever I have bought any luxury stuff, I've been treated well by my salesperson. And whenever I've been not treated well, even though I like this stuff, I have not never bought. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's why uh, my actual question was, how do yeah, you... Yeah, I was waiting for the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, 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 how do you plan your, uh, you know, uh, how do you plan on uh, designing this sales approach that you have in your company? As I said, by paying attention. And actually, we, 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 we teach our, our people to pay attention to small details. Because at the end, when you have money, one way or the other, there are very few things that will actually help you getting it quickly. There are tricks, actually, to understand what's in your right pocket. We call this a right pocket. Well, how much is there? And there are a few things you could actually assess quickly by asking very basic questions. You've got to get in two seconds who you have to deal with. If you just stop at the appearance, you're dead. And by the way, not a funny story, but a funny story at the end, few weeks ago in Paris, we got robbed, okay? And the two guys that robbed the store in Paris were dressed in suits and ties. Not like this, they were dressed like you. Okay, you see how fucked up it is? Thank you. Yes. Uh, so my question is, what would someone that wants to get into luxury fashion industry needs to, needs to do today, in like today's world? Needs to do? Like, yeah, like to start a business, like you, like from the bottom. To start a business, yeah. make sure that you have the right product to start with. Because without the right product, you can do whatever you want. You will not go anywhere. So you have to have the right product. And if you have, you're too young for that. There is a movie called Field of Dreams. You might have not heard about it because you're really too young for that. And the story about the movie is, it's with Kevin Costner. You might not know also who he is because you're, also, you're too young, but that's OK. But in the movie, this, the, he's building a baseball field in the middle of nowhere. And the whole theme of the movie is build it and they will come. What I say is, if you have a right and a great product, 
you don't need so much money at the beginning because people will go for it. And the best proof of that is the success of some people who have launched their things on YouTube. And they were nobodies the day before and then they became someone. 20 years ago, there is no way that you would have seen a, a, the best restaurant in the world being Denmark. No way, because nobody would think that you're gonna get the best food in the world in Denmark. That happened two years ago. Okay, so it's today it's much more a matter of what you start with. And if you start with the right something and you're smart enough, you're good to go. So the la last questions, by the way. Wait, wait, wait. It's uh it's uh no because I want to be nice to you guys because I love being here actually. Mm -hmm. It's it's okay if you spend a little bit a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna set fifteen more minutes. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, Please help me. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm actually a first year fresher, economic student here, and I'm actually restarting the Alice Watch Society, which was passed down to me by Bangjo, my postgraduate who just graduated. So I probably have quite technical questions. It's talking about like services and you know the so the e-commerce law things. That I think I've seen one of your previous interviews that you're saying that uh, AP is trying to experiment with like e-commerce in like two three years. How is that going to change? Like the is it be still maintain the exclusivity because if I'm right, that the um, the AP boutique on Oban Street is by appointment only. Mm -hmm. So, is that something we should like looking forward to be like still? E-commerce is not a it's not an end of a game. It's another tool. It's a new tool in town. But we're not going to say, oh, okay, my dream world is I stay in Switzerland behind my desk, okay, and we sell the forty thousand watches online. I don't have to meet clients anymore. I don't have to answer stupid questions. I don't have to treat people with lavish dinners and, and events and everything. No. No, it's another tool. But I can give you an analogy with our store in New York. Our store in New York does roughly 30 million in sales a year. So 30 million, it's a number. 15 of the 30 million are done online, except that they are done on the phone, online. People are calling the store and say, I want this specific watch. Okay, could you please ship it to me? I'll wire the money. So we, we don't actually meet the people, but we interact with them. But down the road, even though we start an experience online, we will want to know who you are because we want to know if you were happy with everything we've done, except if you don't want us to, but we're going to offer a special service, we go back to service, okay, to treat you differently. We don't want you to go online and put a 350,000 Swiss franc watch in the, in, the, in the basket and check out. Not us. So it's a new tool, not the end of the game. Okay. I believe that the market for watches like the market is not affected by financial crises and etc. September 11, September 12, 2001. Okay? So I was in New York, September 11th. Tough, tough. Where we had our office, the smoke came up to us. Okay? Very tough. September 12th. Store open on 57th Street in New York. Two guys, a guy bought an $800,000 watch that day, another guy bought a $500,000 watch that day, on the 12th. You know what they say? This could have been me. It could have been me. Okay? So, you're right. In theory, a financial crisis could do something and could affect. But don't forget, our number one country in the world in, in terms of sales, is the United States. We make 40,000 watches for the world. How many watches do we sell in the United States a year? 
5,000. 5,000. You know how many millionaires are in the US? 9 million. You know that when there is a crisis, people make a ton of money? Remember the big short? Okay, that movie you know. Huh? <laughs> okay. okay, that's exactly what it is. It's not a matter of... When you buy luxury, when you consume luxury, it touches a part on your brain, which is the emotional part. It's never, uh, how could I say, the thought process could be completely different from all the people in the room. Best example, I gave an interview in Dubai last year, two years ago, and the interview was supposed to be in an art gallery. So I said, okay, so we do the interview in an art gallery, so we're in Dubai. So I go down the stairs to meet the journalist, I see a painting. I fell in love with it in two seconds, I say, I want it. So I asked the guy how much it was, he said, let me check, I'll come back to you. In the Meanwhile, I start the interview, and he hands me the uh, ticket with a number. And I see one million something, he said, not, no, not my level, this I can't. He said, but this is the local currency. <laughs> ah, okay, so what is it in US? It was expensive, but it was five <laughs> digits, and it was not and the first. Digit, the first digit was not a one. Okay, I said yes in two seconds. Why? Because I could spend that kind of money on the spot. I loved it. I didn't say, oh, by the way, this afternoon I'm going to go outside, walk into an art gallery, and buy that painting. It got exposed to me. I had the money. I was in the mood. Boom! I did it. Okay, that's what happens. So yes, a financial crisis could affect the mood of. People, but at the end, when you go to special human beings, it's irrelevant. Okay? Yes? Um, you seem like a very direct and straightforward guy. So I was wondering, uh, in terms of business and also in personal, what people do you feel um, say things that you resonate with um, and also like news outlets or, or any, any type of people who give information? Who do you think gives information that you would want to hear? Which, sorry, I didn't hear the last part. Um, so, what people do you think give information that you would want to hear? Give information? Yes, like uh, advice. Uh, uh, many. No, but many. It's, it's, it's a difficult question because I, I say, I'm going to relate and, and I want to know people who are close to what I stand for as well. What are my values? What, what do I, what's important to me? And what is important to me? I feel it in some people, then obviously, it could be through interviews for a new job or something. If I see that the values are there, then I'm going to say, okay, go, done. I don't care about how many years you spend in school. It's irrelevant. You have what I need to build the success and the future success of the Marpillet. Two little things about it. We made seven watches together. We appeared in three movies. Never signed a contract with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not one piece of paper. We signed a deal with LeBron James on maybe one spread, one, one, one page. Okay, the whole thing. So it's, when you build those type of relationship with people, when they have the values that you share, it doesn't matter. It's much more you could find them with, again, 10 years old, 20 years old, 50 years old, 70 years old, it doesn't matter. It's what you feel, what you believe is important will be the people that you want to be close with. Okay, done. Well, firstly, thank you for being here tonight. And um, my question is, how would you define exclusivity? Because there are brands like Hublot, for example, who... Who? Hublot. Who? <laughs> are you talking about that bullshit brand that is copying us all day long? <laughs> I, have I said this? Yes, I said it. Yes. Yes. In countless limited editions. Yes. And many people are angry at them for diluting the idea of exclusivity now. Uh -huh. 
So what's your take on exclusivity? How would you define it? Exclusivity is mean don't cheat people. Don't cheat people on what you say. You have to, as I said, you're the next generation. Actually, it's not even a generation difference because I'm talking about the 15 years old, the one just after you. Even more than you think you do today, will ask us, the brands, no matter what you buy, whether it's Odoma Piguet or you buy some vegetables or you buy some medicine, anything, will ask. You guys are asking us more transparency than ever on what we give, deliver as messages. You want to see and you want to know if we bullshit you or not. Okay, so it's very, very important actually that we can open the curtain and say, this is, this is what we're doing. Okay, so it's one thing to talk, and Hublot is a specialized in that field, by the way. Okay, it's another one to say, okay, come and see with your own eyes. That's a difference. But don't ever talk to me about that brand again. Okay? Yes. Yes. Um, you um, spoke about the next generation and the experience with your daughter about how the factory tour was like the turning point for her. So I guess, I mean, that kind of resonates with me because I see particularly the luxury watch um, market is one that needs a certain knowledge and passion to understand, you know, the, um, the movement, the heritage. So how do you get that sort of impression across and market that to people who might not understand that yet or they're blind to it because they don't know? By doing it more. Actually, that's our advantage. We could spend, and we spend millions and millions in advertising, whether it's print or digital or whatever you want. At the end, the best advertising we will ever, ever get, no matter what your age is, is a tour to Switzerland to our factory. Because the day you experience that, we want you for life. You might not even buy a watch for the following month or years. It's irrelevant. But the experience you're going to get by seeing the way it's done, because basically you travel in time. You travel 200 years back, but you're still in the 21st century. And you go back and you're going to share that with people. And at one point, some people say, oh, you know what? I want to see it as well. We've seen this more and more and more every day. Okay? Yeah? You spoke a lot about kind of maintaining like a consistent approach and protecting the integrity of the brand, particularly with regards to sales. So my question is, when you kind of sell through distributors, what do you look for? Like, what, what do they need to represent to kind of get a license to sell AP watches? And how careful is that? Dreamworld? Exactly what we are preaching when it's in our own stores. But since that's not the case, this is why we are actually consolidating more and more and more and more our distribution network to be in charge of our own destiny, meaning to be in full control of every single sale we make. Five years ago, 10 years ago, we are a wholesale brand. We are selling through distributors. <coughs> Today, we are coming every day more and more retail-oriented because we want to know who the clients are. Because if we make mistakes, and we are making mistakes, it's not always perfect. We don't always deliver the best experience, but at the end, what matters is we want to know how to correct the things we did wrong and how to amplify the things we do right. Okay? Good. Do you own and or watch other watches that are in AP? Wait, somebody's dying right now. You want water? Here. Here. Take water. She's dying, nobody makes a move. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. These are your people? Uh, yes, yes. I didn't attend this. Okay? Yeah, so, sorry. Do you own and or watch and or use other watches that are in AP? Uh, yes, Richard Mille. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just like Xiaomi. Why? Why? Because they are great, because we are a shareholder of the company yeah. as well. And uh, <laughs> because Xiaomi is a great friend of mine, and uh, because we make all these complicated watches. 
Oh, now you talk. <laughs> First you cough, now you talk. <laughs> Like for if you do in the market, do you see other luxury watch brands like Rolex and Cartier or competitors? Okay, I'm gonna share. Uh, I'm gonna share. So first of all, I've got the, a real respect for a brand like Rolex. Okay, because it's it's a serious brand, no doubt. But I'm gonna give you a number to remember. Well, the Marpillier was born in 1875. Okay, and since 1875, the Marpillier has made watches every single year, no matter what. So every year we make watches. The, the lowest amount of watches made in a year was two. <coughs> two pieces, I think, in 1936, if I remember. That's it. But we've made watches every year. If I add all the production of Ford de Marfigue since 1875 until today, today it's not even one year of production for Rolex. So Rolex makes a million watches a year. As of now, we haven't made a million watches in the history of the company. So. It's a completely different brand. Volumes, very small. Price point of Rolex is five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand. Our average price is in the, I have to think, uh, pounds. So average price right now at AP is roughly thirty-two thousand pounds. Okay, for Rolex it would be five, six, something like this. So you cannot really compare. Okay. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes and no. The competition today, the competition is not only in, in, in the watch world. The competition could be a piece of art. It could be a car. Yeah. Again, you have to understand. Some people will take and take and save the money and take the time to buy themselves their first Audemars A lot of people are multi-times buyers. They buy multiple watches. So at one point, if we say, okay, the watch not going to be available for nine months, and they say, okay, so we'll see. And then the following day, they buy something else and say, you know what? I don't buy this, I will buy something else at another time. The competition is not only about a specific and other watch company. It doesn't work this way. And you, sorry about you say that what you said about people, people I imagine you think Who? Are there any other watch brands you think copy your style? Sorry? Any other watch brands you think copy your style? Copy our style? Yeah. Many today. A lot. A lot. But that's okay. When you are copied, it means that you're good at what you do. Some people do it better than others, and some people really bullshit. It's okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Big shout out to our sponsors, Accenture, Applied Predictive Technologies, First Derivatives PLC, and Stake Venture Zero. Stay tuned for more.